you, Nigel. Well, again, just a very warm welcome to you all. Great to have you here with us. Again, if you're joining us for the first time, we as a church are currently this term looking at the life of David um, in the books of First and Second Samuel. And today we arrive at Second Samuel chapter 7. And uh, this chapter is comprised of two speeches. Um, We've actually had a lot of narrative up till this point, storytelling, if you like. And then today we arrive at a chapter that, in a sense, pauses and concentrates on these two speeches. The first is what's called an oracle, and that is kind of a divine or prophetic message from a person who has recognized spiritual leadership. And in this case, that is the prophet Nathan. He speaks an oracle to David, and that oracle comes from God to Nathan, which then gets passed on to David. And then there's a response, which is David's prayer to God. For the purpose of this morning's message, we'll just be primarily focusing on the oracle, on Nathan's message to David from God. But it's a a wonderful chapter. And there's a sense that this quite a lot has happened up till this point. It's been quite a journey from the shepherd fields of 1 Samuel 16, where we began, Uh, to David becoming a minstrel in uh, Saul's court, to then becoming an outlaw for five to seven years, being uh, chased by Saul, fleeing for his own life. Um, We then see David becoming, if you like, a, a junior king, the king of Judah, where he reigns for seven years. And then, in a sense, David becomes the senior king. He, he brings all of Israel together. The, the southern and the northern kingdoms come together under his leadership as king. And so, quite a journey. And then today, the text pauses in the narrative, and we're invited into these two speeches, if you will. And it's as if the author wants us to really reflect upon the significance of this journey that David has taken, how God has blessed him in the past, and how God will bless him in the future and in future generations. And there's a sense of the biblical story of salvation um, being expressed in this chapter. It's a significant chapter of Scripture. And so we see um, it would be easy for us in in this passage to particularly think about David and all the blessings that he is going to receive, and we're going to do that. But more importantly, it teaches us about the God. It teaches us about the covenant God and the promises and the blessings that he bestows upon his people. And the first characteristics that we see of God in this passage is God's wisdom, the wisdom of God. And as um, Nigel had read out, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Well, after everything that David had been through, we are told that the land enjoys a period of rest. And what a journey David has been on, (laughs) fleeing from Saul for all those years, um, the tension between the two households of Saul and David, 
And uh, even the episode that we saw last week of bringing the ark into Jerusalem, David has uh, defeated the Jebusites, and now Jerusalem, which is such a significant biblical um, image of, uh, of Zion, kind of the centerpiece of God's presence, where God's people and his presence dwell. And David has now established uh, that as the capital city of Israel. And uh, the, the ark is there as well. And it's as if there's this incredible culmination. And it's time, if you like, for some R&R. And uh, David would absolutely be... Um, you, you wouldn't blame David for, you know... If there was ever an appropriate time to have a holiday, maybe take a cruise, well, now was the time. But what we see with David is that David has such a passion and such a desire to express his love and his gratitude for God and the journey that God has taken him on all the way from 1 Samuel chapter 16 in that sheep paddock right now to being crowned king over all of Israel. David will not let up. David does not want to take a rest. Within his heart, he wants to express something of his gratitude to God for all that God has done for him. And so he has a desire to do something great, something grand for God. And that is a very human response. When we come to understand and appreciate the journey that God takes us on, in a sense, from death to life in Christ, our natural human response is to want to do something great or grand for God. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing. But what we will come to see is that God is actually more interested in doing something even greater and even grander in our lives for us than we can ever do for him. And one of the difficult things for us is actually learning to accept that and to receive the incredible grace of God, which is what this chapter is primarily about, the grace of God. But David has this deep desire to build this temple. And God explains through the... Well, and Nathan, the prophet... um, As we also, the readers, know, up to this point in the story, on many occasions, the author has has explained to us that the Lord is with David. It's a little bit like a tagline for David. There are several times during the David story where he experiences success because the Lord is with him. And David knows this. Sorry, Nathan knows this. Nathan knows that the Lord's blessing is upon David. So if David has this desire... To build God a temple, a place where the ark can reside that is far superior to a tent, uh, then surely God's blessing is going to be upon that. So Nathan simply says, of course, if this is what is in your heart, go ahead and do it. In the next section of this passage today, we see something of the humility of God, the humility of God. I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Nathan didn't listen to God. And to just take us a step back, 
The wisdom of God is to do with the timing of God. So in David's heart, he felt the time was now right to build God a temple. But it wasn't God's timing. And we see that when Nathan actually takes the time to listen to God, he discovers that it wasn't God's timing. He has to backtrack and go to David and explain, you are not the one to build the temple. God didn't in this case say no. In a sense, he said, slow down. Um, The timing is not right. The desire to build a temple is a good one. I don't need it. It's not actually going to be for me. Um, It's obviously something that you really want. And in the same same way, um, the Israelites were the ones, God's people, who wanted a king. They wanted to be like other nations. And God, in fact, said, no, I will be your king. Uh, But they wanted a military leader. They wanted to be like the other nations. And in a sense, we see God actually saying, okay, this is what you want. I'll give it to you and I will bless it. And this and the temple is, is kind of the same. God doesn't need an earthly temple to dwell in. He's quite content with the tent because he is a God who is on the move with his people. But God actually says, okay. God does say, okay, and David's son Solomon will build the tent. Oh, sorry, build the temple. But now was not the right time. And there's a lesson here for us. Uh, in terms of listening to God. Many times, you and I might have great and grand uh, desires in mind to do things for God. And they're good things. Start a new ministry. Uh, Do this or do that. The question is, and we often think, this is such a good idea, surely God's going to bless it. Um, And it may not be that God is saying no. It may be that God is saying, slow down. God may say no, Um, or God may say go. God may say yes, the time is indeed right. But what we see in this passage is the importance of slowing down and listening to God before we proceed with our plans to do great and grand things for God. God is more than happy to dwell in a tent. And David, as we see in this passage, is conflicted. You know, here he is in this beautiful, decadent palace. And the, the ark, which is where God's presence dwells, is being housed in a tent. And David doesn't feel right about this. But God's okay with it. And the reason that God is okay with it is because he is a God who is for his people. He is a God who is on the move And he is a God who is prepared to journey with people wherever they go. And in a sense, living in a tent rather than a permanent place of dwelling allows greater freedom for that. Again, just pause and reflect on this beautiful insight into the heart of God. He is a God who will go with us. He will go with us wherever life takes us. Uh, He will journey with us to those dark places, those valleys. And he will journey with us to the mountaintop experiences too. I love that notion of a God who journeys with his people. He doesn't want a permanent place of dwelling because his place of dwelling is with his people. This verse makes me think a little bit like a parent. And many of you will know this. When any of our boys even just have the slightest cough, 
uh, Bron can hear them from our bedroom, which is at the other end of the house, and it unsettles her. You know, she can't rest until she knows that our boys are all right. And what we see here is that is the heart of God. God himself will not rest until his people are at rest. And when his people are unwell, when his people are um, unhoused, on the move themselves, then he himself, in a sense, is unsettled. He is unable to rest. And this beautiful passage shows us how God is constantly putting the needs and the priorities and preferences of his people, even ahead of himself. He is more than happy for David to dwell in this beautiful cedar palace. But he's okay. He's comfortable living in a tent. What this speaks to us about is the humility of our God. The humility of our God. From a New Testament perspective, we see this from the Apostle Paul when he speaks about Jesus in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 where Jesus emptied himself of his um, heavenly authority and position, if you like, and reduced himself to becoming a man, reduced himself to dying on a cross. This is the humility of our God. This speaks of God's heart and God's love for his people. It's beautiful. The next section we see in this chapter really speaks so eloquently and beautifully about the grace of God. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. In these verses, what God does is Firstly, he recounts or retells David all the ways that he has been gracious to David, all the ways that David has experienced the grace of God in the past. I took you, I chose you from tending sheep. I raised you up to be king. I've given you um, defeat over your enemies. But then God goes to speak upon the future grace. And this, this is referred to as grace upon grace. You've received all of this grace in the past, but I'm not finished with you yet. There's actually more grace to come in your future. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And so in verses 9 to 11, God then speaks of the promised grace that is yet to come. The grace of blessing David with ongoing prosperity that he's going to bless him with a messianic line, that the, the Messiah will come through the line of David, that his kingdom will know no end. That unlike Saul, who God removed his spirit from, God will never remove his spirit or blessing from David or anyone along the Davidic line. 
And all of this is God's initiative. In all of this grace, all of the past and all of the present actually has nothing to do with anything David himself has done. It's all the grace and the initiative of God. What we do see in David is someone modelling great patience. And as we've been talking about over this term, one of the amazing things is all the way back here in 1 Samuel 16, when we very first met David and God anointed him through the prophet Samuel that he would be the future king of Israel. And while there were all these opportunities, while David could have grasped for that kingship, two times when he could have quite legitimately taken Saul's own life, and David didn't. David didn't grasp for the kingship. David didn't rush for the kingship. Even during those five to seven years of fleeing from Saul and being uncertain of of what that was going to mean for him and his life and where he was going to end up, we see in the Psalms just this incredible sense of trust and willingness to wait upon God. We had a beautiful time here at the upper room on Monday night. And Carol shared with us how her Bible study had recently um, done a study on Psalm 40. This beautiful psalm of simply learning to wait patiently on the Lord. And and, And the Bible is actually full of so many wonderful promises for all of God's children. And our role is to actually just wait and not grasp for them and try and somehow bring about God's will in our time, but actually just trust in God through all the seasons of life that he in his good time will bring about his good purposes. That is so encouraging. You know, I think about Romans 8.28, that all things, Scripture says, will work together for the good of those who love him. And if we're to take this principle of waiting patiently and apply that to this biblical truth that all things will work together for good, how many times do we have to learn to just be patient? It is such a hard lesson to learn. It's a lesson that I am constantly having to learn myself. By no means am I anywhere near perfecting this whole being a patient person. I pray for patience every day. But what we see with David is someone who models what it means to trust in God and to trust that God will bring about his good purposes in his good and perfect timing. The other thing that we see through the grace of God in this particular section of 2 Samuel 7, is that God's amazing blessing and grace that he pours out upon his servant David is not just for David. Of course, David is a primary recipient of this grace, and he delights in God because of that. But the grace of God poured out upon David is actually for all of Israel and indeed all of God's people. Uh, David is one conduit to which that grace will flow. And there's a wonderful lesson there for us to learn. Now, this section of Scripture that we're looking at today um, is actually called the Davidic 
covenant. It is the Davidic covenant. Now, there are four major covenants in the Bible. A covenant is an agreement, if you like, that God enters into with his people. Um, and there actually there are four major covenants throughout the Old Testament. The first is the covenant God makes with Noah. It's called the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant. That's in Genesis chapter 9. And it is in fact a covenant that God makes with all of humanity. He will never flood the earth again. It is a covenant that applies to all people, whether or not they are worshippers of God or not. Um, the next covenant is the covenant God makes with Abraham. That's called Abrahamic, an Abrahamic covenant. And that is a particular covenant that God makes with a family. He's going to take Abraham and Sarah and he's going to bless them with um, descendants uh, that are more numerous than the stars. And then God builds upon that with the Mosaic covenant. God makes a covenant with Moses and that covenant actually applies now to a nation of people, a nation of people that originated with the family of, of Abraham, but the family has grown. And God now makes this, um, if you like, a national covenant. And then finally, we have the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. And this covenant is about the royal line of which Jesus the Messiah will come. And there is no need for any further covenant after this one because this is the everlasting covenant of which the Messiah, Jesus, comes from. Now, the thing about all of these covenants is that, in a sense, they, they subsume one another. They build upon one another. They don't discard each other. It is all, again, wonderful initiative of God. Um, the middle two covenants, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant, have some conditions that apply in terms of the obedience of God's people. In a sense, God says, the arrangement, the agreement that I'm making with you is I will do these things for you and, and to be my people, this is how you need to respond. The Davidic covenant, in a sense, doesn't override that. So there is still a sense that the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant are still at play. However, the thing that is distinct about the Davidic covenant is that it is entirely one way. It is all about what God is going to do for his people through the royal messianic line. And as you read through 2 Samuel 7, there isn't anything in there about what David or indeed about what Israel need to do in response to receive the blessings of that covenant. This is the covenant God. Finally, we see the faithfulness of God exemplified in these final verses. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. 
but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. The Hebrew word, um, which in English we would pr- pronounce as bayit, which means house, um, has two meanings. And in fact, that word house or bayit in this particular text is used 15 times. It means a, a physical house made of bricks and stone and mortar. Uh, but equally, it means a household made of people. And in this text, we see reference made to the temple um, that David is currently living in, the palace that David is living in. There's reference to the temple that David wants to build for God. Uh, But there's also reference to now the household, the people that God is going to build for his kingdom and for his sake. And we see that that sort of wordplay happening throughout, that David, in a sense, wants to build God a physical temple. But in fact, God is actually going to be the builder and David will be the resident in the household of God. It's, again, it's a marvellous um, message of what God does for us when we want to do something for him. We have this in mind. He has something far grander in mind. I can't... Um, I can't better the words of one of the uh, authors that I read this week who said that God's promises, God's faithfulness is indefectible. I hadn't come across that word before, but I do know what it means when something is defect, right? You think about that. If something is defect, it's broken. It didn't work. There There was something wrong with it. But to be indefectible means it's indestructible. It cannot be broken. It it cannot be improved upon. And we see in those verses that death will not annul it. Like when, even when David dies, the blessing and the grace of God is going to be received through his son. And that's Solomon, as we know. And that blessing is going to continue to pass down through the generations. And it's not going to go away. And even when that son or, or subsequent sons sin, God will still not remove his blessing. They will receive a punishment for it but God will never extract or remove the covenant that he makes with his people through David. And time will not exhaust it. No amount of time is going to change. I think this is absolutely marvellous. The grace of God, the goodness of God, death, sin, time, none of these things can change the promises that God has for his people to build a household where they will dwell with him permanently, where his presence will rest and dwell among them. In Revelation 22, we see that God, when he builds his new heaven and new earth, there will be no temple because the presence of God will literally be with his people. In the Old Testament, they had a temple that Solomon built. And that's where the presence of God dwelt. And that's where people had to go to experience and encounter God. In the New Testament, we're told that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And in fact, the temple of God is both within us and within the context of his people. 
When God brings everything together, there will be no need for a temple that is external. There will be no need for even a temple that is internal because God's presence will actually physically be with all of us. It is remarkable. The temple of God. Now, the section of Scripture that we're not looking at today is David's response. And after everything that we've just talked about, David goes to the tent where the ark is. And there is a sense that we get from the text that David just bows his knee before the ark of God, which represents the presence of God. And he humbles himself and just says, Oh God, who am I? Who am I that you would bless and bestow your grace upon? We see that God's grace in David's prayer, he, David himself, understands that God's grace is not just for him, but indeed will be for all of Israel. We see David respond in great worship and praise. And then we also see David actually pray that the promises God has made in the oracle from Nathan would indeed come to pass. I really encourage you to read David's prayer this afternoon. Don't read it now. Read it. Go home and read it this afternoon, 18 to 29. This is so instructive for how we can pray. We come to God in humility. We honour God. We, we recognise that anything God has given and blessed us with is not just for our good, but for the good of others. We praise and worship God for who he is. And then we actually pray that his word would come to fruition. Some brief reflections from 1 Samuel 7. We have seen in this chapter or part thereof characteristics and qualities of the covenant-making God. We've seen the wisdom of God around God's timing. We've seen the humility of God in God's willingness to dwell in a tent and journey with his people. We've seen the grace of God in the, the past as well as the future blessings of God. And we see the faithfulness of God in that he will be true to his word and his promises for future generations to come. The grace of God is just so evident and so pervasive in this text. And it's that whole idea of grace upon grace. Past grace, present grace, future grace. And from a New Testament perspective, the Apostle John writes about this very understanding and concept of Jesus Christ in his um, coming to the earth, his flesh dwelling amongst us. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Before Christ even came, there was already so much grace. And then God just took it up and up and up a notch. And we see that grace. And we too today are the recipients of the grace of God if our trust is in the person of Christ. We see in this passage that this is a, a, a biblical principle that runs right throughout, that whenever God blesses somebody, he does so in order that they might be a conduit of blessing to others. 
we see that David understands this, that God's blessing and grace toward him is not just for himself, but indeed it will be for future generations. It's a great um, reminder for us to remember that the grace and the blessing that we've received from God is to be passed on and is to be a blessing to others. We see in this passage that firstly God and also David are constantly looking to bless the future generation. God is always moving and thinking about the next generation. And we see with the blessings, we see with what God says to David, that I will never extract, I will never remove my hand from you and from subsequent sons that you have and so forth with that messianic line. We see that God is a God of the generations. He is always a forward-looking God, always looking to see how he can best bless and position the current generation to prepare um, the next generation. And we see that God actually puts all of these wonderful plans in David's heart to build the temple. Um, David himself won't, in fact, be the one to build the temple. His son Solomon will. And the reason why David couldn't build the temple was because he was a warrior. He'd shed a lot of blood in his life. And God would not allow him to be the person to be associated with the building of the temple, which represented peace and worship of God. But David enables, but God allows David to have significant input into the temple itself. The scriptures tell us that the Spirit actually gave David the plans, almost like an architectural plan that David passes on to his son Solomon. David purchases the land on which the temple is built. So again, here we see in David constantly looking to the next generation. How can we bless them? How can we prepare them to receive what God has in store for them? And finally, I think a big takeaway from 2 Samuel 7 is it's all about the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is, brothers and sisters, men and women of God, it is not about what we can do for God. The gospel is all about God's initiative to bless us and prosper us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. It's got nothing to do with what we can do or anything we have done. It's all about God choosing us and blessing us. How can we not but respond to him with thanksgiving, humility and praise? Let's pray. Lord, we humbly come before you as we consider the grace of the gospel. This undeserved mercy and favour poured out upon all who would call upon your name. We thank you, God, that you have our best interest at heart, that it is your absolute desire that, that none would perish, but all would choose you and enter into the dynamic life that you have for us. You are a God of light and life, and it is your desire to bless people with life and light. Oh God, we give you praise and we give you thanks for who you are and for all that you've done. Lord, we can't even begin to fully comprehend the magnitude of your grace, most fully expressed in your Son, Jesus Christ. But we thank you 
We thank you that in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins. We have the hope of eternal life. We have the promise of your spirit here with us now. We have relationship with you. We have blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace. And so in humility, we give you thanks and praise for who you are and for all that you have done. We pray this in the wonderful name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.